dear readers and dear listeners, this is A Time to Thrill with Amy Austin. I also write as Sylvie Fox, and welcome to October. I'm super excited for the fall. Not that there's much of an autumn in Los Angeles, uh, not until maybe end of October, early November, but I will say that the mornings are cooling down. I just went to the beach the last few days um, to go biking on the Strand, which is just a long stretch of bike path. Well, it's actually 22 miles. I think it's broken up. Um, I've only biking the 10 um, miles uh, up and down the beach. And actually, I can post a picture maybe on Instagram. But basically, it's just biking along the beach. There's the bike path, sand, and then the Pacific Ocean. But it hasn't been smoky. It hasn't been too cloudy. So the sky is blue and the temperatures have been in the 60s which is delightful. Um, It's about 90 degrees now as I tape this um, around noon. So, so much for that autumn weather. I will say that the thing I used to love um, about autumn when I lived on the East Coast, which was a majority of my life, but right now I'm about half-half with California and the East Coast, which I never thought would happen. But time passes. Um, One of the things I used to love about autumn is sort of the feel in the air, which is something that even when it's cool here, it's not necessarily achievable. But I sort of loved the cold evenings, afternoons when you'd walk, when I would walk, um, and like the crunching leaves or walking in like a light cold rain, which is something obviously (laughs) odd to miss, but I do miss it. Um, and sort of just walking on that damp pavement, lots of leaves falling, um, you know, bundled up a little, but not too much. It is delightful and I do miss it quite a bit, but, um, and I was actually going to fly, uh, to New England this fall, take in the leaves because I have a sudden missing New England, which I never thought I would miss either. Um, I went to college in New England and, um... But obviously that's not going to happen. I just saw the friend I was going to stay with over Zoom. Um, and we looked at each other and she's in Massachusetts and I'm here. And uh, maybe we'll see each other next year. We're talking about 2021, all of us now, because that is what we do to, to look forward. So um, in October, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on. So I will say this. So book nine, as I said last month, was completed still at the editor. And I have gone ahead and started book 10 in the Casey Court series. Um, Book 10 is called Abused, and it focuses on domestic violence and sort of the fallout from that. I've written about three chapters. I'm, I'm in love, but at the beginning of all books, I'm going to be honest, I am deeply, deeply in love. I love the beginning of books. The first 20,000 words is the most sweet and delightful place to be artistically um, because it's easy and it's fun. And then after that, it gets hard. But those first, I don't know, in this case, five to ten chapters are delightful. And I'm in that delightful place. Um, One of the things I do want to say, because people often ask me this about life in general, I guess. And one of the questions that comes up is, if you could do any other job what would you do? Or if you won the lottery um, and you got infused with, I don't know what the Powerball kind of lotteries there are now, a couple hundred million dollars? I don't know, $50 million, $20 million? I don't know. If you got infused with that amount of cash, 
Um, what would you change about your life? And I really think about this often because, you know, I, I have a great sense of mortality. And I realize that if I want to change my life, now is always the time. And to be frank, there's actually not a lot I would change about my life. Um, I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy being able to write and tell stories. And it delights my 10-year-old self, like the self who spent all my time in the Brooklyn Public Library reading books, is delighted with the outcome that I get to write those kinds of books. Um, So I don't think, I wouldn't change my job. Um, I don't necessarily think I'd change where I live. I mean, Los Angeles, you know, has its challenges, and I didn't grow up driving because I grew up in New York City, so driving, having to drive is a challenge, although in COVID, I've had to drive so much less. Um, It's been interesting sort of giving that up. So I do like Los Angeles. I do split my time between here and Budapest, although obviously I have not done that this year, and I haven't been, it's the longest I've been away in years. Um, So that part of my life, I wouldn't change. I would still do travel. Um, I have a child that he goes nowhere. Um, So I think that I'm so happy to have found a job that I love and I get up every day and most days I love it. You know, some days not so great, Um, but most days I really enjoy it. And I also really enjoy the colleagues that I have around me, um, fellow writers whom I adore to have those people sort of surrounding me on a regular basis and they're home all day so we can chat and we can zoom and we can text in between writing and that is delightful so abused (laughs) well you know I'm a few thousand words in now yeah let's just say um I think poisoned and abused will probably will probably will be released in 2021 Um, And as soon as I have those dates, I'll certainly share them. But who knows when that'll be. Um, So in the last few um, podcasts, I've talked about other books. But this book, I want to talk about um, book two in the Casey Court series, which is currently called Under Color of Law. But as I talked about in the previous podcast, um, the books are going to be retitled and rebranded. And this one, the title tentatively, I'm 90% sure that's going to stay the same, is called Ransomed. And the book sort of focuses on, I guess, what we'll call judicial abuses. Um, it's a topic that interested me at the time and I wrote the book. There was a I don't call it a wave, because that seems overly broad, but maybe it's true. There were a wave of sort of judicial abuses that were being reported in the media. Um, One of them that I still have a lot of feelings about um, were judges who were sentencing children to, well, juvenile prisons, private prisons, and getting a kickback. And so children were getting sentences that they might not otherwise have gotten or longer sentences because the judges were getting paid for that. And I feel that there are so many problems with that system. And another thing that um, happened at the time is that there were a couple of judges who were arrested. Um, I don't know if they were ever convicted for... mm, 
I'll just say abusing litigants. And so in this book, um, Under Color of Law, which will be called Ransom, I talk a little bit about that. Um, in the So in a little bit, a lot. Um, it's the focus of the book. So there's a judge, um, Brody, who's part of the an influential family that runs across the Casey Court series. And as both a probate judge and or a juvenile court judge, he... I will say, holds people's children hostage, and hence the title ransomed. And if women want to get their children out of the foster care system or whatever they wanted to achieve in probate court, um, which in Ohio handles things other than death, it also handles um, issues for guardianship and things like that when there's money that needs to be handled for children. And... um, for people to get the result that they want, he wants sex of some kind. Um, and it's such an abuse because there's no... The women in this book, and I guess in real life, are certainly between a rock and a hard place because generally you'd like to call out the abuse. But if you're the, the prospect of being reunited with your very child is on the line then you do what you need to do and it's not necessarily an advocacy for a systemic change but obviously in this book there's more of that kind of um, advocacy in a bigger picture because women because systemic change is necessary judges like that have to be weeded out Interestingly, so when I uh, was an attorney in Ohio, I worked in three basic courts. Um, I worked in juvenile court, which has, I don't know, at the time, maybe five or six judges, and was like 20 blocks away from the regular courts, the regular, the other courts downtown. I worked in domestic uh, relations court, which was just divorce and custody between people who had been married. And that had maybe, it had five judges um, downtown and one retired judge who handled domestic violence. And uh, speaking of, well, I'll call it corruption, but if you wanted to have a positive result in front of that judge, I was told it's best to wear pink and it's best to wear a skirt. And I happened to have a pink suit from college. I think I wore my college graduation. And um, I would pull that on, zip it up, and uh, go in front of him if I and to be successful in that court. Um, and but the third sort of um, place that I practiced was what we call they used what they call the justice center, and it's about thirty uh, two judges I think maybe thirty four I can't remember the number um, who just handled civil cases um, as well as felony criminal. So with the with there's so many with there being so many judges in so many different locations and judges having a lot of absolute power, the protocol in any courtroom could change. So there'd be let's say forty five different protocols in forty five different judges' rooms. Um, and this doesn't even take into account magistrates and other people who also worked in the system. And if you wanted your client to be successful or have their matter heard fairly, then you had to follow that judge's rules. And whether or not you thought those rules were fair wasn't, I don't know, wasn't something I addressed. It was um, 
Judge Judge A likes X, and you did X so that your client can get a fair shake. Um, because in those kinds of cases, it, it felt like there was no room to sort of push back against judges because it would harm your particular client and that particular matter, and that felt unfair. So it was. It's an interesting sort of world to be in where judges really do have absolute power over their domain and certainly have power over the case they're presiding over and deciding and making uh, decisions and especially when it involves like custody, children, foster care, whether or not your client goes to jail, if they go to jail and for how long. I mean, there's so many things that they can affect in a micro way that even the best appeal cannot fix. Um, I mean, the best outcome from appeals, when I used to do a lot of appellate work, um, is to get a new trial. But that rarely happens, to get a reversal and to start over. And you start over with the same judge, same client, and same problems. So it's a lot of, um, to be honest, micromanaging, finding out what the judge's expectations are, meeting them, and advocating for your client the best they can. And I say all this because I think, um, at least from the reader letters and emails I get, um, I think I have been asked why there isn't like a bigger, like why doesn't people get together and push back against the system, but at least in Ohio and in many other states, you know, judges are elected individually and they have uh, a lot of autonomy. And it's very hard to push back especially when you have cases in front of them, either as a lawyer where you're going to see the same judges again and again and you want your clients to be treated fairly, or as a client who only is in court once, hopefully, in their life, um, maybe maximum twice, and they need to get the best result they can at the time, and that doesn't leave a lot of space for advocacy. Um, One of the things my clients said is that litigation is extremely stressful. And I had to take that into consideration um, because their particular case, while, you know, stressing me out, especially criminal cases, because, you know, going to jail was obviously the the result I didn't want um, as a criminal defense attorney. But so those were stressful um, to me. And criminal cases, I lost a lot of sleep over because, you know, one false move and look, your client's in jail for 10 years. Um, but, and I lost less sleep over, uh, civil cases, to be frank, it still, um, wasn't nearly as stressful for me, obviously, as the people who are going to be directly affected by whatever the result is. Are they going to get custody of their children? Are they going to have to share custody 50%, 40%, 30% weekends? Are they going to have to drive to somewhere else to meet in the middle to drop off their children, um, at least, you know, in in the domestic relations cases. Or in juvenile, are their children going to be released from foster care? What's the reunification plan? What's the likelihood of reunification? Are their children going to be, is the county going to gain permanent custody of their children and they will never see them again, or at least not until they're 18? So, I mean, the stakes were always so high. And I sort of wanted to talk about that issue in the book. When the stakes are high, systemic change is not always the first order of business. Um, And it's just, it's 
it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's, there's a lot of tension there. And um, Casey's, as always, right in the middle of it. Um, the other thing I sort of love about this story is she, <laughs> at the beginning of the book, um, her boyfriend, her, uh, her law school boyfriend who dumped her, like she says, like a sack of putrid garbage, um, you know, calls her and she loses her mind. And it's something I think almost everybody I know sort of has a fantasy about some ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, I don't know, wife, lover sort of coming back, um, the one that got away. But Casey sort of has to face that. So if the one that got away comes back, then what? And, you know, do you get to live out the fantasy you thought was going to happen? You know, people say that breakups are often about sort of a loss of the future fantasy or expect loss of, like, an expectation of a future. And that's the part that's sadder or the saddest part, um, more so than the, you know, breaking away from somebody in general. And for her to be handed the opportunity, it's like, you get to relive your life, albeit years later, but here's the opportunity to go back and redo something that felt unfinished. And that's a big one for her. Um, and it's interestingly handled um, in this book. I love this book. I wrote half. This book I wrote, so I was pregnant um, in 2010, I guess, and 20, 2009, <laughs> I was born in 2010. And I remember writing half the book and finding out when I was pregnant. And I was like, so what I'm going to do while I'm pregnant is I'm going to finish this book. And it turns out pregnancy involved sleeping, throwing up, traveling like a desperate person who was never going to get on a plane again. I spent a month in driving through uh, England, Scotland, and Wales. And nesting. I got very obsessed with redoing crown molding and painting um which I now hear was hormonal but I was just like a woman obsessed like it has to be done and you know I was like eight months pregnant and had workers in my house while I was trying to like I don't know prepare for I don't know what because you know babies care about crown molding so much and um I didn't finish the book and then I don't know what happened, and I woke up uh, a couple years later, and I had a child, and I wrote two romances. Um, I wrote The Good Enough Husband, which is under the Sylvie Fox pen name, and I think I wrote another book, I don't even remember. And then I looked up one day, and I thought, oh, I wonder what happened to Casey. And I finished this book, and then continued to write on in the series, but there was a lull there where things didn't happen, life happened, and writing didn't happen, um, so I, I couldn't tell you, like, when I reread the book later, I can't tell which part was written, um, before baby, and which part was written after baby, because I'm the same person, and I found when I write, I write the same way, so there's probably not that great of a difference, but it was certainly, it's the only book that had that long of a break. I mean, I've taken off a week or two sometimes when I'm writing because I just get frustrated with the story or frustrated with the process or 
life happens. But it, this was the, I don't know, months, maybe years between the beginning of this book and the end of this book. So, <laughs> but um, I will certainly link to the book in the show notes. Um, and if you haven't read it, I certainly would check it out. It is the f- second full-length book in the series, um, Under Color of Law, um, soon to be retitled as Ransomed. And uh, it covers those two issues, I guess, uh, judicial abuses and what happens if the one that got away called you back. So I think that's it for October. I don't have anything else I think I wanted to discuss. I'm looking at my notes. Hold on. Uh, no, I discussed autumn. I discussed how much I love writing, and I talked about judicial abuses. So, um, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, you can certainly email me. Just go to amyaustin.com, A-I-M-E-A-U-S-T-I-N.com. You can email me at amy at amyaustin.com or contact me through my website, and I'm happy to answer reader questions um, in future podcasts. We'll see what's up for November. Um, It's my birthday. It is not one that ends in a five and a zero. So in theory, there'll be no crisis. Um, But I do love November probably for that reason alone, because I have a birthday, because it's Thanksgiving, because the weather cools down no matter where I am, obviously not Australia or something. And um, I find it to be a delightful month. Um, I hope that you have a lovely autumn. Um, if you're on the top of the world in the Northern Hemisphere. And I hope that you stay safe um, and enjoy the time we have to introspect and think about what things truly mean. It was great talking to you, and I'll see you in November.